spent the last two weeks now uh, talking about the Holy Spirit, and a few weeks ago, uh, as we were rolling towards Easter, I thought to myself, okay, well, how do I break this Holy Spirit um, series, and how do I go to Resurrection Sunday? And uh, Brian, as he usually does, he stole my thunder, he read part of my scripture today, uh, and Romans chapter 8 is what will be today, but it's, I came across this line that I've read many times, but it never hit me like it did a few weeks ago, that the very same power who raised Jesus from the dead is also alive in us. And so I said this morning at breakfast, I think oftentimes what we do with Resurrection Sunday is we think about Jesus and coming from out of the tomb, and that is totally true, and we will talk about that this morning. But we, we have an opportunity, every one of us who are here this morning, everybody who is watching live as well too, has an opportunity to live resurrection life right now. Right now. You don't, you don't have to wait. You'll experience it in full in eternity, but you can experience that right now. We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit this morning. Again, we come to resurrection. We come to Easter Sunday with, with hearts that are full and hopes that are ignited because of the magnificent drama that played out on the outskirts of Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. I was having a conversation last night with Brylan, my little four-year-old, and she was asking me, Daddy, what's, what's Easter? So I'm like, you're trying to explain to a four-year-old this whole thing about a man dying and a man coming back to life like this happened thousands of years ago, and we, we still remember this. And she was like, okay. I think she's just worried. I think she's just worried about her eggs, really, is what she's worried about. So, but that's what happened. And we still remember this over 2,000 years ago of an empty tomb, a man who dies and sacrifices his life in an empty tomb that he comes out of. That's why we have come here this morning. But it's also just as likely uh, for some of us, and maybe many of us who for too long have missed out on the, on the full significance and the deeper meaning of resurrection. And for instance, have you ever considered this? And this question came across my mind as I was preparing for this sermon. Who actually brought Jesus back from the dead? Like you're like, well, that's a really good question, right? I don't think I have thought about that one before. Many of you are sitting there right now and you're like, this guy's a fool. Like, really? Duh. We know this. Like, God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's correct. Yes. It's affirmed in many places among them. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 says this about Jesus' resurrection. God released him, Jesus, from the horrors of death and raised him back to life for death. I love this line. Death could not keep him in its grip. And although that answer, like I said, is, is true, God did bring Jesus back from the dead, it is not completely correct. For Scripture also tells us that the Father and each person of what we call the Trinity, God in three persons, the Father Himself had a direct part to play in the resurrection. Later in Acts chapter 2, in verses 32 and 33, we get these words, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all, the apostles at that time, were all witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And now He, Jesus, is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and, listen here it says, and the, the Father, as He had promised, gave Him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and here today. That was said at the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. But here's, here's a little mind bender for you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The Father was responsible for raising Jesus from the dead, but the Bible affirms as well that Jesus himself was responsible for coming back to life. And you're like, wait a minute. 
How in the world does that happen? How in the world can a person raise themselves from the dead? Let me give you a real preachery answer. You ready for this one? I don't know. I, I don't know, but, but Jesus has it in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He says this very familiar phrase. He's arguing with the Pharisees, and the Jewish leaders demanded of Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing? If God gave you real authority, Jesus, show us in a miraculous sign and prove that you are who you say you are. And Jesus says what? All right. Destroy this temple, and in three days, what does it say here at the very end? I will raise it up. Now, some of you are like, that's great. We're talking about a temple, a building. Jesus is not talking about a temple and a building. What's he talking about? Himself, his body. You destroy this, I, he says, I will raise it up in three days days. God the Father, God the Son were responsible for Jesus coming back to life. And some of you are already going, okay, that one stretched me just a little bit, Ryan. Thank you very much. I didn't need my head twisted like that this morning. But here's where I want to spend our time this morning. Not so much. We have in the past months talked about God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ himself. But not only did and does the Father and the Son have a role in the resurrection and resurrection life today for us, for you and for me, so does and so did the Holy Spirit over 2,000 years ago and today. In fact, Paul says, I love this line in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I'm telling you guys, you come in here today, and I don't know everybody's story that comes in here today, but I'm going to be preaching to some stories today of people who feel I'm done. I'm finished in life. God can't do anything with me. Paul says right there, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And yet, as we've noticed the last couple of weeks, as we've talked about this person of the Holy Spirit, it's a little bit much to put in our heads and to put into our hearts. As Bible thinker and teacher Bernard Rahm, he says this, to profess to know a great deal about the Spirit of God to what we just talked about and we'll talk about this morning. It's contrary to the nature of the Spirit of God. There is a, a hiddenness to the Spirit that cannot be uncovered. There is an immediacy to, of the Spirit that cannot be shoved into vision. There is an invisibility of the Spirit that cannot be forced into visibility. And so it's for these reasons one feels helpless, inadequate, and unworthy to write or even speak about the Spirit. And yet here I am as a fool this morning. I'm going to try to talk about the Spirit of God. The Spirit's role in resurrection and in resurrection life. Again, as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And guys, there is nowhere that that's more true and evident than in our text for this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, or if you have your device with you, Romans chapter 8, if you, uh, everybody should have in front of you, have a Bible with you, there's a Bible right in front of you. I, I wish I had a Bible that I could tell you what page number that is, but once you, if you have the Pew Bible and you get to Romans chapter 8, just call out the page number so everybody else can get there. Romans chapter 8, Paul begins preaching uh, a really kind of a new tenor in the book of Romans. He has spent the first several chapters of the book talking about uh, several different things and, and the gospel itself. And then he comes to chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, he says this. Guys, there, there, there cannot be probably a better verse and start to a verse than this. So now, there is 
no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And I just want to stop for a minute at verse 1. I want to be very, very clear about this because I think that many times this verse gets twisted and people say, oh, Jesus just loves everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is no condemnation for anybody. Does it say that there in verse 1? No, there is no condemnation for anybody at all. No, what does it say? Very specifically, for those who belong to Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that more this morning, but that's very important for us to establish right from the start. And because you do belong to Him, for those who do belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses wasn't able to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature, and so God did what the law could not do. What did He do? He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about the things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will obey God's laws. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you, you who are in Christ Jesus, are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. And then this verse right here, verse 11. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living in you or within you. And there are probably some who said, buddy, I just showed up here this morning to get a nice resurrection sermon. I don't really want to hear about this spirit. This is a little freaky. I don't know what you're talking about right now. Guys, I am convinced that everything that Paul says here in Romans chapter 8 as a whole, and what we've just talked about, we just, we just read 11 verses. This is the key for us to understand what it means to live resurrection life today. Paul would later say in another one of his letters something very similar to what he says there in Romans chapter 8. In Ephesians chapter 1, as he opens up this letter to the church at Ephesus, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, he says this, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. Paul talked about that a lot, this power. What is this power that he talks about? We'll get to that this morning. The greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. On January 1st, 1863, Eddie, were you there? Do you remember 18? No, sorry, that's a flip. I'm sorry, I had. He got him laughing though. 
January 1st, 1863, a very significant day in the U.S.'s history. The President of the United States, then Abraham Lincoln, signed an edict proclaiming that slaves in the Confederate States were free. And what he signed was known as what? Does anybody know? The Emancipation Proclamation. Over 2,000 years ago, my friends, God signed our Emancipation Proclamation for every man, woman, child, young, old, doesn't matter. Everybody got an Emancipation Proclamation on a cross just outside of Jerusalem when his son went to die for our sins. And just as significant as that, as Paul would say in many of his letters, was Jesus coming back to life. You see, often we do that. We we put one above the other. That it was really important that Jesus died on the cross. No, no, it was really important that Jesus came back out of a tomb and raised to life. Which is the most important? Yes, they both are. They both go together. Paul argues that, and we'll talk about this morning in Romans chapter 8, that Jesus coming back to life, but more personally for us, hearing this word this morning, is walking in that resurrection life. See, again, we can become so detached from this concept of a man coming back out of a grave and coming back to life. You're like, that that was good job. That was really impressive. We don't think about what it means for us personally that God has really and truly called every one of us in here to first of all belong to Him, to come to Him, to believe in Him, and then in doing that, we would have resurrection life. We would walk in resurrection life. Here's the question. How do we do that? I mean, that sounds really good and wonderful, but it sounds really big and imposing. How do we do that? How does that happen in a life? How is it made possible? Romans chapter 8 starts to pull back the curtains for us and gives us an idea. Romans chapter 8, guys, is as one popular Christian author and pastor, John Piper, says, the greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is Romans, in his opinion. And if that's true, the greatest chapter in that letter is chapter 8. Similarly, a man by the name of Griffith Thomas said, Romans chapter 8 is the chapter of chapters for the believer. He says, I suppose if Scripture were a golden ring, that the book of Romans would be the diamond on that golden ring, and Romans chapter 8 would be the sparkle on the diamond of that golden ring. Guys, I cannot overestimate and oversay how important and how big Romans chapter 8 is, and it fits so well with where we are in the calendar, Easter Sunday. Guys, that that being the case of what John Piper says and Griffith Thomas says, that this is probably one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. A contender for the best verse in the entire Bible would be Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I mean, if you were writing a, a soundtrack for the book of Romans, when you rounded the corner and came out of chapter 7 and you came into chapter 8, you would probably start hearing this. Now, how many of you right now are imagining the movie and Rocky's running up? I I wish I had more steps, I would run up them, but it looks silly if I just ran up two steps and got to the top and then... All right. That's what you would hear, guys. 
Because everything I said that comes before in Romans, chapters 1 through 7, uh, frankly, I'm not going to like oversell this or like try to sugarcoat this. It's like, blech. Like, what in the world is going on, Paul? You, you opened your letter with seven chapters of like, basically this. We're messed up. Humanity in this world is messed up. We are so off track. We are so full of a sickness we call sin. All of what comes before in Romans is an exploration of the gospel. Chapter 7 is desperation. Our powerlessness to sin. We cannot be done with our sin. In fact, Paul would say it this way at the very end of chapter 7, verse 25, the last part of it. So you see how it is. And this is Paul speaking about his own life. I mean, the Apostle Paul speaking about his own life. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Ugh. Like, if that's where it stopped, you'd be like, just stop, man. Like, that's no good. That is desperation. That is defeat. That is powerlessness. But as the old saying goes, it's always darkest before the dawn, isn't it? And what Paul says immediately as we come into chapter 8, as the pages turn for chapter 8, is, my friends, don't despair. You are in secure hands and you are safe. And it all starts with those two words right there at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation. None. Now, it doesn't say there that there is if you are in Christ Jesus, there's less condemnation. Or you only get like a teensy-weensy amount of con- No, it says what, guys? None. I, I just, I want to stop for a moment and just like explore that one verse, and I promise I'm not going to st- take every verse and be like, let's explore this really deep. No, this is a really important verse. The actual translation of that for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're a note taker, this is a place that you would take notes because guys, you need to know this. The first fact of the resurrection, why is the resurrection so important? Is that the resurrection tethers us to the safety and to the security that our punishment is finished. Done. Fini. I don't know any more like foreign languages so I can't do anything else fancy, alright? Done. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you belong to Christ Jesus, you don't have to worry about your acceptance. You don't have to worry about, oh man, I'm going to slip back into that, or I'm going to slip back into that. Done. No condemnation. Now, does that mean that we're going to be perfect rock stars the rest of our lives? We're going to walk a really straight road and nothing's going to happen? No. It's not what Paul says here. He says, you will, you're going to fall, and you're going to fail, and you're going to flub up. But you have to know this, your punishment, if you belong to Christ Jesus, is is done. Finished. No more. Guys, condemnation is a legal term. It was in in this day, and it it still is in our day to some degree. It it means that there's a charge that is held against you. Something that is hanging over your head. You owe a debt. You owe a payment to someone. But for those who are in Christ, that debt no longer exists because that debt has been paid in full on the cross by Jesus. 
Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher, used to say that for those who are in Christ, it would be unjust for God to hold the believer responsible for sin because that would be requiring two payments for the same sin. In the legal system, this is known as double jeopardy. And no, I'm not talking about the movie with Ashley Judd. I'm talking about the actual legal system. There's something that exists in our legal system that says that you cannot be convicted of the same crime twice. If you go on trial and they go through the whole process of trial and they say you are not guilty, they cannot then come back and say, you know, let's retry you. Done. That's called double jeopardy. Guys, the same thing exists in our spiritual lives. Jesus already paid the price for our sin. And therefore, God can never and will never condemn you for that. And although God may discipline you, and He may take you to task, and He may correct you over and over and over again in your life, that's altogether different than punishment and condemnation. I mean, you should read this first verse in Romans chapter 8, and when you read it, you should think to yourself, boy, am I glad that God has me covered that's really what Paul is saying here. In his, in, 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 that's, that's the Ryan translation. Hey, boys and girls, don't worry. God has you covered. There, there is a, a wide difference between consequences and conviction, and we experience consequences for sin. We experience conviction for sin and condemnation. Guys, God says that when, when you choose Christ, when I choose Christ, when anyone chooses Christ and to follow Christ and to walk in Christ, we never have to worry about that last one, condemnation. It's covered. It's taken care of. It's finished. Guys, no condemnation means that God has nothing against us. He finds no fault in us. He finds nothing to punish us for. For the Christian, condemnation is not just waiting in the wings, because most people live their lives this way, guys, especially believers. God is just waiting around the corner. He's going to pounce on me when he gets the chance, right? Like, it, like, it, like there's this gloom that hangs over your life that, oh man, I messed that up, and God is just waiting over there to get, no. That's, that's not what Paul says here. That's not what any of Scripture affirms. Condemnation is not waiting for you in the wings of your life to cloud your future. I want to ask you this really simple question. When Jesus, this is an all play, by the way, all right? This is an easy one, I, I hope. When Jesus died on the cross over 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins had you committed? Zero. I, like, I, I hope none of you were alive 2,000 years ago. If you were, a conversation after service is what I want to have. None. Jesus goes to a cross. This is how this Bible explains it. He goes to a cross to be condemned, be punished for our sins. You're like, wait a minute, that doesn't really make sense. If I'm not, I'm nowhere close to existing. I have done no sin in my life. How does he die for my sin? That's the mind blower of it all, isn't it, right? When Jesus goes to die for the sins of the world on a cross, he dies for all past sins. He dies for any sin that you're caught in right now. And guess what he also does? He dies for any sin that you will commit in the future. What? Too good to be true, right? It's not. It's all in here. None. He pays for all of your sins 
in advance. That means, again, that He dies for sins, atones for sins that you haven't even committed yet. And that's why I love this next quote from a man, his name is Rankin Wilborn. He says this, God does not love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He wants you to be like Christ, but He loves you primarily to the degree that you are in Christ, and that is always 100%. When you choose Christ and you choose to walk in Christ, you believe in Christ and have faith in Christ, you're always in Christ. You don't just like, oh, I had it today, but I lost it because I did that one. No, that's not how it works. You're always in Christ, 100%, which is what Paul talks about next here in Romans chapter 8. That not only is our punishment finished, not only is our punishment done, but we have safety and security, guys, because our position is defined. For those who belong or are in Christ Jesus is what Paul would say here. Pastor Skip Heitzig says it this way. When you choose Jesus, when you are in Jesus, when you belong to Jesus, you have a new address. You have a new position. You are under new ownership. Uh, Three simple words in a very big and powerful phrase. In Christ Jesus. Jesus. Do you want to know how important that phrase is? It's used 87 times in the New Testament, many of them by Paul. It's one of Paul's favorite descriptions for what a Christian, what a believer, what a follower of Jesus Christ is. When he wants to describe what a Christian is, it's somebody who is very simply three words, in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot in that. That's for another sermon and another day. But in Christ Jesus, who believes on Christ Jesus, accepts Christ Jesus, has faith in Jesus, and walks and continues to walk in that path. Guys, being in Christ is so rewarding. Just a few of the things the Bible tells us, being in Christ makes you a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that. Being in Christ removes condemnation. That's what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 8. Being in Christ produces a whole new expectation in your life. You wonder to yourself sometimes, why in the world am I living the same life that feels like it's in a rut, that feels like it's mundane, that feels like it's going nowhere, that feels like it's miserable, that feels like I'm getting nowhere in life because you're not in Christ. Being in Christ produces a whole new expectation. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says one of the greatest lines that I can imagine. I have come, he says, so that you would have life and have it to the full. To have it in abundance. In England, and this is, this is a true story, there is a church that has a sign on its front door and it reads this. It's so, it's so beautiful when you think about it. This is, it says, the gate of heaven. Enter ye all by this door. But then there's a sign underneath that sign that says this door is kept locked because of the draft. Please use the side entrance. (laughs) Guys, you know what? Like I I think about that, and I think maybe that's like how some of us live our lives. Maybe that's how some of us are right now as we sit in this room. We We often feel the way that that sign reads. We're a little tenuous. We're a little unsure in our spiritual position. Like, where am I with God? Does God love me? Does God not love me? I can assure you, my friend, it doesn't matter who you are and where you are and what you've done in your life. God loves you. Let's just get that out of the way. 
We're just a real shaky. I don't know. Where, where am I with God? We don't know if we belong with God. We don't know we belong in the faith. We don't know if God accepts us. We're unsure of the power that is in work, at work within us. And that's what Paul tries to clear up here in Romans chapter 8. That's why it is so important for Paul to begin with no condemnation because, guys, here's the deal. We need to know no condemnation before we can ever experience transformation in our life. If you are walking around, and I, I bet there are people in here who have been followers of Jesus for years, and they still have this weight on them, this burden on them, this, this gloom and doom that, that like just is over them all the time because they don't know these first two words of verse 1 here. There is no condemnation. And so your life can never be changed. Your life can never be transformed. Which is where Paul moves next here in Romans chapter 8. We find the power to change only in the assurance of God's acceptance of us. And the way that we know that acceptance, and here comes the grand entrance of the Spirit. The only way we know acceptance in our life is through the life-giving power of the Spirit living and moving and working in our lives. And just so you know, I said this two weeks ago, I want to be very clear about this, and this will freak some people out. But even if you aren't in Jesus, you know what I really believe? I believe the Spirit's still working in your life. He's still working on you. You go away now today and you're like, gee, I didn't really want anybody in my life. I didn't really want that Spirit. In my life. He, it doesn't matter what you want. He's working. If you would only cooperate with Him in your life, what it would mean for a transformation in your life. And so here's Paul's roadmap so far of where we've been. Paul has been trying to get us to understand our desperation apart from Jesus. But then he preaches and proclaims no condemnation, which flows what we're going to be talking about here for the rest of our time, life transformation. And again, this is the heart of what Paul is trying to get at in this chapter. The next link in our safety net, our, our punishment is finished and our position is defined but guys this is the best news of it all here our power the power that every single person in here has or can have in their life is dynamic there's a greek word that is used often in the new testament for the dynamic nature of our power that lives within us or that can be in us and it is the word do not miss it's where we get the word dynamite from explosive powerful What's really interesting to note, and this gives us an understanding of what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 8, is that in the previous chapter, in chapter 7 of Romans, there is a whole list of and uses of personal pronouns, I, me, my. Over and over again, Paul says those words. It's I, I, I. Me, me, me. My, my, my. 47 times in just one chapter, he uses some version of those three words. And then we roll over into chapter 8, and do you know what's conspicuously absent from chapter 8? I, me, or my. Never used in chapter 8. We just want one chapter, and they're completely gone. What takes the place of I and me and my? The Holy Spirit. 20 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned just in chapter 8. It's only, the Holy Spirit is only mentioned twice in all the rest of Romans before that. Why is that? 
Why would Paul do that? Why the radical change in just one chapter? And guys, it's because of this. Resurrection life and finding resurrection in your life is not found in just gradual self-improvement. And I use that term there very specifically, self-improvement. But it's found in fellowshipping with the Spirit and staying close to Jesus. See, I, I, I think this is the case. I only know this because this is true about my life. Is that I try really, really hard in my life to improve my life. And do you know that's a recipe every single time for disaster? Because like, I don't know about you, but I know about me. Whenever I try to get a hold of my life, do you know what happens to my life? It goes sideways. Every single time it goes sideways. Guys, we cannot improve ourselves. Guys, coming to Christ is not a devotion to a religion which is lifeless and dead, but it is a surrender to a person. It is a relationship. Guys, it, it, is, it is all of you to all of Jesus. It's all about a relationship, I said. The reality, the tangibility of that relationship is found in a connection to the Spirit. Guys, we need to, we desperately, every single person in this room today, I don't care who you are and where you are and what you've done with Jesus, every one of us needs to stop trying to strike a bargain with God. There is only one deal that is sufficient. There is only one deal that God is willing to make with any man or woman on this planet. His righteousness and His resurrection his power for your absolute and your total surrender. And so maybe the best thing that I could say to anybody in here this morning is just very simply this. Give up. Just, and not in a defeatist way like, oh, I'm just going to give up in life. No. Give up trying to control your life. And give control of your life to the only person who can really actually do that. That's Jesus himself through the power of the Spirit in your life. C.S. Lewis, many people will know that name. In his book, Mere Christianity, he said this. Christ essentially says this. Give me all of you. I don't want a certain amount of your time. I don't want a certain amount of your talents and money or a certain amount of your work. I want you. Imagine Jesus saying that to you this morning. Personally to you, I want you. All of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman. But I have come to kill it. That's why Jesus says in the Gospels that you must die to yourself. He goes, no half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out, root and all. That's what we need to do in our lives. Hand it over to me, Jesus says, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange. I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. 
It's a band by the name of J.D. Greer, and he has a great illustration for this. Have you ever been out before, and you're out uh, with maybe another couple or another two couples, or you're just out with somebody, you're out with your parents or whatever it may be, you're having a nice dinner, and what inevitably happens at the end of the dinner, right, is the jockeying starts to happen, the fight starts to happen, and like, no, 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 I insist, let me have this one, I'll pick up the ticket on this, and then the other person's like, no, 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 I'll get it, and there's this big fight of like, feigning like, you know, humility, but all the time, what do you think in the back of your mind? I hope they just really fight me because I want them to take this. I don't want to. I can't afford this, by the way, anyways. I don't know why I'm doing this. Guys, it's just the same way in our spiritual lives. If you or I insist on picking up the bill ourselves, we can do that. All day long, Jesus is like, that's fine. You want to pick the bill up? Pick the bill up. If your pride stands in the way of you accepting Jesus, then understanding what you are accepting when you reject his offer of taking it. Guys, the full debt will come due someday. It's going to happen. The scripture is so abundantly clear about judgment that comes. And when that comes, guess who the bill is going to be on? If you say, no, 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 I got this one. Every time that Jesus tries, no, 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 I got this one. Do you know who the bill is going to be on at the end of the day? You. Me. Or what you can do, what Scripture urges us to do, what I would urge you this morning to do is that you can let Jesus pick up the check. Because guess what, guys? Here's the real answer. He already has. Just let Him pick up the check and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has paid it all. And guys, when we do that, I guarantee you, I don't do 100% guarantees very much, but 100% guarantee you when you finally and fully in your life surrender and you give up and you let Jesus have the bill, you have hope and you have power even when you feel powerless. And that means that if you are struggling in some sin, that struggle is not the end of your story. Spirit of God is is with you and and working for you. God is for you. Jesus is with you, which means that every struggle that you have, if you are doing that in Christ, will end in victory. Just as sure as the Spirit raised Jesus from the grave, this is what Paul is talking about, He will raise you to resurrection life and power. Guys, the Holy Spirit dominates Romans chapter 8. I've already established that. And you could say that Chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit's chapter in the book of Romans, but I want you to look again at chapter 4 because I want to read this over again. There's a very important line that happens in here. He says that, that God gave his, his Son up as a sacrifice for our sins, and then verse 4 says this, He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied in us, doesn't it? Is that what it says in your Bible? Does it say right there? What does it say? He, he did this so that it would be satisfied in us. Is that what it says in your Bible? No, no. Very importantly, it says He satisfied it for us. Here, here's a really humbling moment. You do nothing. You do nothing to get what Jesus gives to you. He does it for us. It's not you. It's not your effort. It's not your work. It's fulfilled in us, not by us. And because everything that I've said this morning, guys, that our punishment is defeated, that our position is defined, that our power is focused, guys, 
at the end of the day, our practice, our living has to be different as believers. We are in the sway of the Spirit. We have new desires to please Him and to serve Him. We have a new capacity to do those things. It has rightly been said this way. If your faith, the faith that you're living in your life hasn't changed you, it's time for your faith to be changed. Oh, I just said that. Guys, I, I'm, I'm deadly serious. I'm not just spouting off and throwing lines out here. Is your life really changed? Is your life really showing the fruit of what Jesus has done for you and what the Spirit is doing in you? Believers should think differently. Believers act differently. Believers live differently. Or at least we should. Absolutely, we should. Our deeds should match the declaration of who we are in Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit being available to us. Now, that is a, a process. It's a process that the Bible calls a really big word, sanctification. That we are never what we should be, but we are always in a, a state of, of becoming more like Jesus, a process of becoming more like Jesus. I don't know how many of you have ever heard this line in your life. It usually comes from like, some crusty old preacher, like, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? I did that really well, didn't I? I did that way too well, actually, all right? That was really scary. Do you, are you really sure that God would welcome you in? That's a, it's actually a really good question. Maybe not asked sometimes with the greatest motivation or like with the greatest tone, but I think there's actually, and maybe, maybe it's not better, but it's an equally important question. It's this. When you go home today and, and you go through the rest of your day and you fall asleep tonight and, you, and if you wake up tomorrow and when you wake up tomorrow, will your life be any different because the Spirit of Jesus is inside you? Will it? Will you live by that power? You see, there is a principle. There are two principles in, in life. One of them is called the storage principle, and one of them is called the contact principle. Let me explain it this way. You will understand this very well if I relate this to transportation into your car. Your cars operate by a storage principle. You understand that you go down the road, and then what do you eventually need to put into the car? Gas. Even if you're really fancy and you've got an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle, what do you have to put into that car? Electricity. Something has to be stored in that car for it to go. Now, many years ago, well before any of us lived, all right, there was a mode of transportation that worked on the contact principle. You had these funny little vehicles that would go down the road and they would have an arm sticking up off them and they would be contacting a, a, a wire that ran down the street. That's a contact principle. It made it go. And we would say to ourselves, Ryan, which one of those is better, to, to operate by a storage principle or a contact principle when it comes to our spiritual life? Both. Both. You, you, you both need to be filled by the Spirit, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5, and you also need to be abiding with Christ, as he says in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You need to be both storing the power of the Spirit, and you need to be connected and contacting Jesus Himself and staying close to Him. This, guys, is what brings resurrection life together. A man by the name of F.B. Meyer once told the story of, uh, of, of a group of four men 
who were climbing up um, a mountain. It was snowy, it was icy. Two of them were just regular old Joe Schmoes, and two of them were experienced guides, and so how they worked it was that one of the experienced guys was at the front, and then the two Joe Schmoes were in the middle, and then another one of the guides was at the very back. And as the story goes, as they're climbing up this mountain, and the weather starts to turn on them, and things begin to get treacherous, the guy in the very back, Mr. Experienced Guide, slips and falls. And so what does naturally happen is they're all linked together, and what happens? They begin to start pulling one another, and as he slips and he falls, and he starts going, it gets the third guy and pulls him, and he starts to slip and fall, and then naturally it gets the second guy, and he slips and he starts falling. You see where the story is going, right? Except for the first guy had enough of a mind, enough smarts, enough time to react that he took his ice pick and he drove it deep into the ice. And that's what ended up saving them as this man drives his ice The reason that he stands firm is because he, this first man, had driven his spike deep into the ice. And he can hold on to that that he will tell. And then F.B. Meyer concludes his story by saying this, I am like one of those men who slipped. But thank God I am tethered in a living partnership to Christ. My friends, it's the best news that I could give you on Resurrection Sunday morning. Every single person in here. The book of Romans, earlier in the book of Romans, Paul says that we have all slipped we have all fallen short of where we need to be in life. And so we are like those three guys that have no ability to get themselves back up. They are slipped, they fell, and they're, just, they're, they're going. And yet the Bible also tells us that there is a man named Jesus who, if you will, drove his ice pick deep within the ice. In fact, it wasn't ice pick deep within the ice. It was two arms that were stretched on a cross and nails put into his hands for us for you and for me and guys thank god that he did that thank goodness that we have an ability to be tethered to jesus in such a way to have a partnership with him that our lives don't have to end in misery and in desperation and in death they can not just end in life, they can have life right now. And so my challenge to you, the band is going to play a song that's going to be familiar to some people. It was written several years ago by Jeremy Campus. It's called Same Power, what we talked about this morning. That this morning, especially I'm talking to anybody who came in here this morning that is struggling in some sort of sin. They are just struggling in their life. You cannot get out of this hamster wheel. And you're like, come on, there's got to be something more than this. Guys, today is a day for you to grab a hold of that man who put that ice pick in the ice over 2,000 years ago for you and for me, and that you would hold on to him, you would cling to him with everything that you have, and you would walk in your life differently, victoriously. But as they're playing this song, if you, if you need prayer, 
anybody in here needs prayer this morning, anybody in here needs to make a decision to take another step closer to Christ, that you would do that this morning. I'm here. Brian, can I ask you to come on up? Brian, one of our elders, is going to be up here too. We would love to pray with you. We would love to pray over you. We would love to help, like I said, you take your next step towards Jesus. But all of us, every single one of us, guys, needs to know that we can walk in the power and the resurrection life of the Spirit today, right now. And so I encourage you, if you'd stand with me, band's going to play this. Please just sing your hearts out if you know this song. If not, just listen to these words of the Holy Spirit's power in our life.